Welcome to the SOAS Leads the Conversation podcast, where we host expert discussions on current affairs with SOAS academics, students, alumni, and friends from our community. This episode, we have our producer, Frederick Molin, who's also a SOAS alumnus, talking to the director of our Centre of International Studies and Diplomacy, Dr. Dan Plesh. We're also joined by Whitney Purdom, a SOAS Arabic and Development Studies alumna who's currently based in Washington, D.C. They'll be discussing what impacts they believe a Joe Biden presidency will have on the U.S. and the wider world. Hello, you're listening to SOAS Radio. I'm Fred, the station manager, and this is the first episode of SOAS Leads to Conversation, a new podcast series. Today, I'm joined by two guests to discuss the U.S. elections. Whitney, Dan, great to be speaking to you. How are you guys doing? Very well. Thank you, Fred. Great to be here. Nice to talk to you today. Me too. Thanks, Fred. And great to be talking with you, Whitney. Whitney, you're based in D.C. Do you have any highlights since the election? Yeah, I think, um, you know, directly following the election, there was this feeling of, you know, specifically in D.C., like this, you know, feeling of jubilation. And um, especially in the past week when they've called Georgia and Arizona for for Biden. So I feel like there's a great sense of relief and uh, everybody's just really looking forward to hunkering down for the next two months and and seeing what happens during the transition. But uh, definitely a triumphant feeling over the past two weeks in, in D.C. And more recently, Trump supporters rallied in D.C. Did you notice that at all? Uh, I think on the Saturday after Election Day, when, um, you, you know, the AP and most networks were calling it for Biden, everybody in the city kind of just converged on the streets um, downtown at BLM Plaza. There was, you know, banging of pots and honking of horns. And uh, I think everybody was just elated. And it was um, after such an intense summer full of a lot of sadness, a lot of grief and a lot of heaviness. Uh, it was just so nice to be together in the streets for a reason that everybody felt was, you know, happy and um really triumphant moment. So that, that was definitely the highlight that Saturday, I think. And more recently, Trump supporters rallied in D.C. Did you notice that at all? Uh, definitely. Um, I wasn't there for for that Saturday, but um, some friends of mine, um, you know, you know, went down and, and did some direct action and said it was a, a really intense, um, intense time and uh, just like a, a face of society that really isn't present in D.C., um, you know, day to day. So it was, it was kind of shocking to see this these different people with, you know, very divergent views come to the city uh, in a very aggressive way. So I think it was kind of a wake up call. Like, you know, this is what's out there. And, you know, there are people that are just diametrically opposed and living in two different realities. So I think it was a really scary experience, you know, but but very informative at the same time of of what, you know, kind of the greater environment or the greater scene that it is causing the schism, you know, where we're kind of divided directly 50-50 and half in this country. So I think it's good to see kind of something that's such a juxtaposition to what you're used to on a day-to-day to kind of get a, a reality check. But I think it was really unsettling for people in D.C. Dan, you just published an excellent article in the Barraza entitled A Realistic Progressive Foreign Policy for the United States, which listeners can find a link to in the show notes. Could you briefly summarize the argument of your piece? I think the issue is if one is developing foreign policy and trying to develop a progressive one, it needs to be rooted in the domestic progressive agenda. So if you care about domestic gun control, then one should be interested in global gun control. If you're interested in uh, promoting feminist issues domestically, then these need to be far part of uh, international policy. And the same too with uh, democracy. Clearly, there's a lot of unfinished business with the United States. It's still rumbling on. And this puts a premium on communication abroad because one can see, you know, uh, Mr. Trump exemplified this 
that he was aligning with anti-democrats abroad. So I think the the need to integrate domestic and uh, international, uh, also to redefine national security, there really is a, a disastrous failed strategic culture. The United States has been spending vast sums of money on the military, benefiting contractors, and the military themselves don't mind this level of engagement. But one's seen a rapid decline in American power in the last 20 years. Uh, Indeed, the unipolar moment that was much written about by academics has just been squandered. And it's clear that this militarist approach doesn't work, whereas shifting resources into the green economy can work both domestically and internationally. And in a sense, rather than working out how to fight wars in an Arctic which is melting, which is the driver of some policy at the moment, one needs to be working out how to halt the ice melting and and stabilize things. And at the moment, although the uh, incoming Biden administration has very significant commitments in the green agenda, which is to be commended, it isn't um, really seeing this as a as a national security priority requiring resources out of the defense budget. So those would be a few things. And I would say it's interesting uh, from a parochial English perspective. I don't say a British, but an English perspective. Uh, Uncle Sam now has an emerald green Irish waistcoat, uh, which doesn't bode well for the English nationalist agenda being pursued by the British government under Johnson. Joe Biden is an Irish Catholic. He probably his first overseas trip is to be to uh, to Ireland, not to not to the UK, uh, and they care passionately about uh, the European Union, the peace in Ireland, and aren't going to take kindly to. Uh, this English nationalist disdain for the Irish and disruption with the European Union. And this is moving away from my piece, but I think it's one of the, the key dynamics we're going to see in international affairs coming out of uh, the Biden approach to Europe and to the UK. What are some of the multilateral agreements you think the Biden presidency will seek to reestablish? Are you hopeful the administration will join the Paris Agreement, for example, or will that be too little, too late? I think both the... Uh, a number of international agreements, for example, with the Russians on nuclear weapons, with Iran and the Paris Accords. Yes, we'll see Biden wanting to rejoin those, but time has moved on. The, all of these issues have become more urgent and they need a dramatic new in, uh, energy. And whether or not he and his team have that energy is what we have to look out for. And indeed, these things aren't a spectator sport. They need to be pushed for by the people who are in in favour of them. And just to linger a minute on this domestic and international, there's a very interesting historical uh, lesson, which is that one of the Native American uh, indigenous peoples, after they had been driven west by Andrew Jackson in the 1840s, at the end of their uh, veil, their march of tears, somehow managed to find money and send it to Ireland, to Irish people who were being starved to death by the food tariffs imposed by the government in London. And that example, you know, from people in distress reaching out to each other more than a century and a half ago, I think should speak very much to us today when we think, oh, well, it might be too difficult to help or too difficult to communicate. If those populations could communicate and support each other in those circumstances, I don't think we have any excuse uh, today not to Uh, be far more uh, active and driven than uh, one sees all too often, frankly. Do you believe that there are unrealistic expectations pinned on this Biden presidency? It's been billed as a return to normal. 
I recall in the run-up to the election, hearing a CNN commentator call Trump the most uncomfortable pair of shoes you've ever worn and refer to Biden as a comfortable pair of old slippers. Do you think this is a fair assessment? These are very, very good questions. I think the starting point would be is that the the policies of the last 20, 30 years have not been realistic. Uh, what they've produced a decline in US power uh, and great global instability, the financial crash, collapse of weapons agreements and so on, and is not going to be sufficient. And I think hopefully uh, President Biden and his team will understand that to put on a comfort, comfortable old of slippers, we all need to get into some uh, brand new running shoes, uh, if I can strange the analogy. Uh, that isn't then a question of putting unrealistic expectations on the situation. Actually, it's a question of imposing an uncomfortable reality of what needs to be urgently done. Whitney, what are your expectations for this Biden presidency? Yeah, I think, um, you know, despite the fact that I think a lot of people were disappointed that Biden ended up being the the candidate of choice, uh, the, the comfortable pair of slippers, I do think that um, some um, issues that were raised by other, you know, more like running shoes, you know, to, to go on with that analogy, uh, like Andrew Yang, you know, really pushing for universal basic income. I think that that has really entered the vernacular of uh, a lot of American people, whereas that was something that nobody, you know, only, you know, a, a very fringe group is talking about prior to the, prior to, you know, 2020, you know, democratic debates, but now issues like universal basic income, Medicare for all, you know, things that you really, you know, Green New Deal, the Sunrise Movement has done an incredible job of also moving that into, you know, the everyday vernacular. I think that some of these ideas are here to stay. And that has kind of shifted the conversation and shifted everybody's expectations one level up. So I think those things are not going to go away. And I think Joe Biden knows that as well. And I think he's going to try to incorporate some of those concepts and some of those people uh, into his cabinet, whether it's Andrew Yang or other people. But, you know, ideas of UBI, especially in, in the pandemic, is not going away. And I, I do think also now that we're going to have a more outward looking, you know, foreign policy um, as far as climate change, I think that, you know, Germany is, you know, implementing its own, you know, Green New Deal. And America is going to see that that's going to be a job creator with China trying to be, you know, net emission zero by 2060. Hopefully that will promote some sort of, you know, competition between two economies who can, who can go, you know, who can green their economy quicker and who can, you know, kind of monopolize the, uh, you know, the economic sphere of, you know, you know, a green economy and creating jobs in that way. So hopefully it's like inward pressure with these new ideas, UBI, Medicare for all things that are kind of changing the social landscape and then external pressure, you know, kind of trying to live up to these expectations um, uh, of a Green New Deal. And as Dan was saying, you know, kind of facing the, you know, the, the collective threat of climate change as, you know, really, truly a matter of national security and and how we're going to play that out on the global sphere will be really interesting. So hopefully the internal and external will really like galvanize change, even though, you know, Joe Biden is the, the comfy pair of slippers. These things aren't going away, I don't think. I think that's very much the, the direction that we that we want to see. But for those people who are, you know, US citizens, I think it's a question of getting involved. These matters are not a spectator sport. And if you're citizens of other countries where uh, there is a, is a degree of freedom and democratic rights, then we all need to put our shoulder into this um, and not sort of sit back um, merely to analyzing it from an academic perspective. This is These are luxuries we can't afford any, any longer. Yeah, amen to that. And maybe so that everybody feels like they have their part to play. Definitely. Democracy is not a spectator sport. I'm curious to hear your opinions on how you see political organization changing in times of COVID. 
everybody is getting, you know, supremely creative with how they're, you know, trying to do their part, especially in, in the times of, of COVID. And I think you have your, you know, your direct actions you're taking to the streets. But I also think behind the scenes, like, you know, groups like Citizens Climate Lobby in the U.S., which is really seeking to do like cross aisle negotiation on climate change and carbon tax, they're constantly have their nose to the grindstone. And, you know, perhaps they're not as, you know, optical as, as taking to the streets. But I think there are organizations that are, you know, just doing their thing and, and taking it online and, and keeping going. Um, so I think that there's, you know, different levels of participation all across the board, whether you're, you know, with Extinction Rebellion and you're out in the street and you're, you know, trying to be disruptive all the way to, you know, things like Citizens Climate Lobby, where you're, you're really just going for age-old negotiation and, and, and coming to the center. Um, I think that all of those things exist. But um, what I think is really critical at this moment, even though it, it feels like counterintuitive, is to really try to understand each other because we're not going to have broad participation in in democracy, whether it be climate change or any other issue, if there's so much anger and there's so much bitterness and there's so much um, discord. I think we're going to find really quickly that, um, that that becomes a zero-sum game. So I think we need to start really thinking about... Um, disseminating information in a, in a really inclusive way and like really trying to understand why people think the way they do and, and, and trying to see, you know, viewpoints as valid um, and, and at least, you know, approaching the other side with curiosity rather than with disdain or with, um, you know, superiority. I think that that those two things need to go and, and we really need to, to try to, to, to get on the same page or at least try to understand each other. Otherwise, demonstrations and, you know, BLM, you know, activism and any sort is, is not going to work if so bitterly divided. That's that's what I've seen, at least. I can, I can empathize with that. I think it's easy for, one might say, that people living on America's coast or indeed the, the temperate climate of the UK are just to misunderstand climate change. You know, as having lived in, in the United States for quite a long time, the reality of life in large parts of the United States is that for most of the year, it's only really habitable if you expend a huge amount of energy, either on heat in winter or on air conditioning in summer. So the idea that the climate and the temperature is going to get worse than it already is, is a little counterintuitive. And it's also counterintuitive to tell people that the answer is not to just throw more energy at the problem if it's too hot or too cold. Now, of course, different energy supplies, solar, wind, and so on, can answer that question. But for large parts of the country, the using less energy is a deeply intuitive message. And that's one of the reasons, I think, for example, that there's a, a cultural difference. And you find that, I think, on, on a range of issues. So I entirely agree about the importance of empathy. I can't resist a plug. We do uh, teach online masters in global public policy and have uh, modules in training in, in global advocacy, which I help convene. So if you're looking for a further extension of your higher education, those, those can help. I would say that sometimes, you know, even if you don't have a background, just focusing on a particular issue and a particular topic and making that your thing is one way to get focus um, and then leverage in particular issues. And I know from colleagues who work in this that members of Congress are frequently overwhelmed. And you know, if you have a member of Congress actually becoming a go-to person on a particular issue or in an NGO can be hugely valuable. So I think, I think people should feel very encouraged by what is possible if one simply put one's mind and energy to it. Dan, how do you think the perspective of the US has changed 
as the global leader of the free world. In your piece, you mentioned that um, the Nazi flag has been flown alongside the Confederate one in rallies. Can the U.S. still be thought of as a global leader in democracy? Well, let's be clear, to large parts of the world, this was never the U.S., or very briefly. I write a lot about the radicalism of the Franklin Roosevelt generation in the 1940s, uh, and that, I think, was truly epoch-making, and um, I urge people to look at it. It's a very exciting time, not looked at enough. But for large parts of the period since then, if you're in Latin America or elsewhere, the U.S. was supporting uh, vile military dictatorships. If you look at the refugee crisis of people coming up to the U.S.'s southern borders, these are created by vicious regimes supported by the U.S., including by Secretary of State Clinton in Honduras. So uh, it's been a limited part of the world that has ever seen the U.S. really as a consistent supporter of democracy. Um, and you know, it depends where, where you're located very much, and certainly under Trump the explicit courting of uh, authoritarian regimes, uh, be it Hungary in its own way or uh, North Korea, um, I think hugely dented the US reputation. But that being said, of course, people internationally are far more interested, progressives far more interested and hopeful about what might emerge in the United States than they are let's say, looking at Beijing or Moscow. Moscow. But let's uh, bear in mind also that you can look at many different countries and you see huge amounts of energy, whether it's in um, the resistance to a US-led coup in Bolivia uh, or the uh, attempt to uh, oust the uh, dictatorial regime uh, in Belarus, that all over the world there are uh, continuing growing mass movements on the streets. And I think the question is really whether or not uh, a Biden administration and its supporters make sure that uh, supporting um, people with our values, if I can put it in inverted commas, in other countries is uh, the way forward. I'm old enough to remember, if I might, um, the 1980s, when those of us in the anti-nuclear movement in Western Europe were talking to the dissident groups um, like Solidarity or Vaclav Havel in uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, at a time when uh, the Western leaders were only talking to their communist masters. Uh, it's, it's we who developed those relationships um, that had such uh, a positive result, not that we ever get any credit for it. So I think it's very important to uh, develop uh, cross-border international links. And as I say, um, if the indigenous peoples of North America and the Irish uh, could manage this to some extent in the middle of the 19th century, uh, we've got no excuse with all the luxuries we have not to do the same today. I guess uh, freedom to access information can be seen as a double-edged sword. We've seen the rise of conspiracy theories and mistrust in supranational institutions, uh, specifically, I guess, with regards to the pandemic. How do you think this has affected people's trust in these institutions? Well, clearly it's undermined it, but propaganda is not new. Uh, false news is not new. Um, in the US and uh, other parts of the world, 
this is has a a history of of generations, and I think there's a um, uh, so somehow one can make oneself think, oh, our problems are unique and uniquely difficult. I don't think they are. Uh, we just need to be focused and, as Whitney was saying, to look to communicate with humanity. After all, um, the archetypal work of Nelson Mandela carries forward a huge amount just of humanity of contact, which helps disarm um, uh, opponents. But I would say I do find it slightly, slightly surprising that there isn't more direct contact between different religious organizations and uh, indeed church congregations in the United States, that they tend to live in their little boxes and people with very different uh, political religious views maybe are uh, at their own places of worship only a mile or two away. And I think there's room for um, a great deal of in more interfaith and ecumenical work that currently goes on. And I'm, there are, I think, a lot of good examples to build on, though. Whitney, what does your work as a board member of the American Friends of SOAS look like? And how did your time at SOAS affect how you view the U.S.? For sure, my time at SOAS is, uh, you know, definitely forced me to have a more critical eye of, of the United States. And as, as Dan was talking about, you know, I, I think that we still are choking on our own sense of exceptionalism. And there's you know, zero movement to, you know, for example, you know, look exactly what he said, look at, look at the, you know, the, the actions in the United States that have been anything other than, you know, heroic, or, you know, everybody's still kind of looking back to, you know, our, our role in World War II, and we'll, we'll never get over that. So I think until we really take time to look at our own history with a critical eye and, you know, overcome our, you know, exceptionalist views, I think we're just going to, unfortunately, keep, keep existing in our own echo chamber. Um, and I'm not sure what the solution for that is, but, you know, I think as we go further and further into the future, and as Dan said, over the past 20 years, America has, has declined as a global power significantly. And um, I, I, I don't think that, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that that's going to change until we, until we can, you know, uh, look at the past with a, with a more critical eye, uh, as, as European countries like Germany did. Yeah, I don't see that happening. But the American Friends of SOAS board um, really looks to keep alumni in the U.S. engaged uh, with the SOAS community and um, to do fundraising for, you know, a series of scholarships um, that, that SOAS offers um, for a number of students. Uh, we're doing a lot of webinar series um, in, in the times of the pandemic because we can no longer have in-person speakers. But um, we do have SOAS academics come to the States um, previously and, and give talks and, and do, you know, really incredible panels. But if you go to the AFSOAS uh, website, you'll see a list of, um, you know, webinars that we have going on up until March or April, more to come. But yeah, I, I think SOAS is such a rich community. And I think especially for, you know, people in the US, it's really good to talk to like-minded people and see how we can, you know, build bridges and ad address the numerous challenges that are ahead of us in a, in a really um, thoughtful way. A lot has been said on how Trump has changed or damaged the rules of international relations. If we're to take a Biden presidency as a return to normal, what does that mean and look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Okay, I, th I think there have been some positives from the Trump administration, and uh, one should be prepared to face up to them. He hasn't accelerated uh, U.S. engagement in foreign wars and has carried out a, a degree of retrenchment militarily. And those who uh, complain about withdrawing 
U.S. forces from even now from Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. The continuation of those forces, tragically, has is not likely to produce any more positive results than it has now for the last uh, 20 years. For good or ill also, Trump simply conducted by policy by not having one. So a great many of the State Department and Defense Department lower-level jobs simply weren't occupied. And what that meant, for good or ill, is that countries around the world had to start thinking and behaving independently. Now, in the southern Gulf, this produced a level of dispute between Saudi Arabia and other countries in the southern Gulf, which has been very negative. Uh, But on the other hand, the flexibility shown by South Korea with respect to the North probably wouldn't have been permitted under a a business-as-usual type of regime. So I think one needs to be cautious. Democratic regimes, democratic uh, administrations have a a history of getting America into more overseas wars. I think we have to be very concerned about relations with China and misperceptions on both sides about that relationship with a regime, with a a new uh, Biden administration. So it's a mixed bag. And not everything that happened under Trump was entirely negative. And we have to be careful that uh, a number, quite a lot of the critic of Republican governments, for example, on nuclear policy, on nuclear weapons, they, they fall silent when there's a Democrat in the White House. Bill Clinton, for example, introduced a policy quietly of including terrorist groups on the potential target list for US nuclear forces. No Democrat think tank gave that any attention. Those of us tried to say something from the sidelines. But that being said, I think on the nuclear issue, it's likely that that Joe Biden will move swiftly in some areas to rebuild arms control with Russia and to declare very lim- limitations on US weapons production uh, and so forth. And of course, they are under growing pressure from the nuclear ban movement and the legal norm now being established with the nuclear ban treaty. Going back to climate change and the need for clean energy, Dan, do you think that nuclear power can be a solution? Can there be nuclear power with nuclear disarmament? I think nuclear energy is, was always uh, the Siamese twin of nuclear weapons. Can't be separated. They were joined at birth and can't be separated. I think there are a few people, there are still romantics who talk about very small nuclear reactors and nuclear fusion, but uh, the, 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 the risk and cost associated with nuclear energy are far greater than the, the benefits that one could accrue from them. But I very much agree with what Whitney was saying uh, about, uh, we should hear more from her about this, on the uh, the green agenda. And I think there is some chance that we will see an accelerated competition, virtuous competition between states and organizations and with the United States, with uh, states like uh, California leading the way to drive these policies forward. And they certainly need to do so extremely rapidly. As, as Dan said, I think there's going to be interstate competition. You know, I, I get a ton of newsletters about, you know, different technologies and startups, you know, doing carbon removal or uh, solar innovation. And there's just so much and so many great ideas out there and so many accelerators. And uh, I think America can really capitalize on its startup culture and it's really going to shine. And I think it already is shining on, you know, climate innovations. I do think, you know, at the core, you know, we are our own worst enemy. And I think the fossil fuel and the plastics, you know, lobbying and the way that our government is run and the way our campaigns are funded, I think that's going to be our major Achilles heel in terms of, you know, innovating quickly because, you know, we're always going to be a slave to the dollar in in that sense. Um, But I do think the more we see, you know, like Boris Johnson just came out last week and said that, you know, the UK is going to be going on a great 
wind agenda and, and, you know, they're going to, you know, really be upping their game and, you know, and wind power and, and solar power. I think the more we see our allies, um, like Germany, like the UK, especially the UK, you know, as they serve as models for the way forward, there's going to be less and less, there's going to have to be less and less resistance. So it's great to, you know, really see a wonderful, rich, you know, innovative community in the United States that is already moving towards carbon capture, already moving towards solar and, and microgrids and all of these things that are really going to be the answer. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, with the dearth of, of leadership in, in our government, like, you know, we tend to save ourselves in the free market. So hopefully, you know, we, we keep seeing great innovations like that. And with, with the Biden administration, it's going to be way more encouraging than the Trump administration was. So you know, these startups and, you know, accelerators will, will be able to grow up and grow out and solve problems. Um, so I think that's a great way forward. But yeah, I think as, as far as fossil fuels go, um, as far as plastics go, you know, I think we fundamentally have to change the way that we that we accept money and the way that we run campaigns and the way that, you know, the lobbying infrastructure exists here. I think that's something that is a really unique challenge to us that, you know, other countries don't necessarily face to the degree that we do. So the faster those things can get dismantled as well, the, the I think progress would be like the sky is the limit. So hopefully good things to come. Dan, to answer that, to what extent do you think we can leave it to the private sector to implement the change needed in clean energy? What's required for a Green New Deal to work from a public policy perspective? I think the short answer is all of the above. From a public policy perspective on this sort of issue, I think it, it's important to realize that all of these factors can act in a synergy question of how fast and how much more energy, excuse the, the remark, uh, one one sees push into them all. Clearly, the private sector is is vital, but there's a, a regulatory framework, subsidy issues. For example, around the world, still huge amounts of subsidies that go into fossil fuels and United States too, included in that. And the first thing I think is to get rid of those subsidies, transfer them perhaps into the renewable sector to introduce incentive schemes. And there's, so there's a role for state uh, and national governments. One, I think, of the advantages of the the Paris Accord is that it's a flexible framework. And that means that people can do little, but it also means that it accommodates a pressure to do, pressures to do more. So I'd be reluctant to think about a whole new agreement. It's more a question of uh, pushing further and faster within that, within that context. Looking to the legacy of Trump and the archetype of the strongman leader in global politics, what do you guys think the way forward is if you are looking at things from a feminist foreign policy perspective? Yeah, I mean, just just quickly thinking about, um, you know, countries that have done the best uh, or had, the, you know, got off the best first uh, in terms of response to, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. I, I think that female leaders really shown in that regard. They showed an incredible amount of, you know, forward thinking and uh, thoughtfulness and compassion. And, you know, even uh, in, in the U.S., looking at Gretchen Whitmire in, in, in Michigan and thinking how much she was demonized for really thinking about the whole instead of the individual. So I think as far as, you know, feminist, you know, to whatever we extent we could say feminist ideology, I think um, less individualistic and more group um, consideration is something that. I think a lot of Americans are craving and needing, especially in times of the pandemic. And these qualities, I think, have really shown in other female leaders um, or even in male leaders um, throughout this crisis where we're really thinking more uh, everybody is a part of a whole versus in terms of everybody is the singular. So hopefully we can pivot more towards that um, that way of thinking than, 
you know, than the exceptionalistic, you know, individualistic and, and selfish um, way that, you know, other leaders have shown themselves during this crisis as well. If I say on the one hand, I think there is a grave danger of um, the international coalition of a, a racist white patriarchy. The, the combination of Nazism and the Confederacy is highly toxic, and we don't want to have to have another world war to deal with it, particularly if it's really within our, within our, in our own countries. But I think also um, one needs a good deal of uh, humour and ridicule. Um, you know, it is beyond parody that in Poland um, the Catholic Church is well known for having great many of closet and abusive um, gay members amongst it, that the Catholic Church uh, gets away with leading an attack on um, uh, the uh, gay and the gay agenda. Um, that is, is extraordinary and a lack of imagination and humour, frankly, in, in taking it on. If it was a Western... The character like Trump, the braggart, the ignorant, stupid braggart of, of poor judgment, uh, would get gunned down well within the first 10 minutes. Um, and yet somehow this kind of blowhard personality is uh, accorded a seriousness and, and status. And it is also fundamentally cowardly. It's, it's an ideology which says we can't cope with thinking about the problems of the world, so we're going to retreat into our little nativism, nativist borough. And I think that, uh, that ridicule uh, is perhaps the most powerful uh, way of, uh, of dealing with this kind of braggart approach. One only has to look at uh, the famous Charlie, Chapter, Charlie Chaplin uh, movie, The Great Dictator, you know, and tra- transpose leaders such as Putin or uh, Erdogan or Trump or uh, President Xi into that role to see how vulnerable uh, these kind of braggarts are and how desperate they are to shut up any uh, criticism of their self-destructive bravado. Just a question on that, Dan. Maybe I, I mean, maybe living in the States, you miss it, but I feel like there is this lack of ridicule or this lack of willingness to ridicule or call out Trump from Western you know, European governments. And why do you think there is that hesitancy to do so? Well, if I can use the analogy between ancient Rome and its vassal states, its subsidiary states, the West Europeans, particularly the United Kingdom, are subsidiary vassal states of the empire. And it's pretty dangerous to go around uh, criticizing the, 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 the boss if you're worried about what the consequences might be. The problem for the English, as I said, for the English nationalists, uh, is that suddenly it is the Irish who are calling all the cards. The Irish have influence in Brussels, and now they have great influence in the, in the White House. Uncle Sam's got an emerald green waistcoat. And the English, the, the, the nationalist uh, English agenda didn't anticipate that and is in real trouble now. Thanks for listening to our pilot episode of SOAS Leads the Conversation. You can find out more about Dr. Dan Plesch and the Centre of International Studies and Diplomacy and all of its research and courses on the SOAS website. To find out more about our US alumni network, please visit the American Friends of SOAS website, afsoas.org. If you're a staff, member or student and would like to get involved with this podcast, please contact ko21 at soas.ac.uk. If you want to see more projects from the SOAS Radio archives, you can find them on SoundCloud or by visiting soasradio.org.